passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, everybody. It's John Pollock with a bonus MMA show today. We've got some interviews coming your way that I got to conduct earlier this week when uh, Bellator, DAZN did a, a media day at a gym here in downtown Toronto, had a chance to catch up with Big John McCarthy and Robin Black ahead of Bellator 231 and 232 that are coming up this weekend. They've got a Friday and Saturday night back-to-back series of shows from the Mohegan Sun Arena in Uncasville, Connecticut. So uh, looking forward to, in particular, the main event on Saturday night. It's a rematch between Roy McDonald and Douglas Lima, not only for McDonald's welterweight championship that has been defended throughout the Grand Prix, also for a million dollars. The winner will be leaving with the million-dollar prize and the title of welterweight Grand Prix winner. It's a very fascinating fight. It's a rematch from January of 2018. Interestingly enough, John McCarthy, that was his first broadcast for Bellator as a commentator. So interesting that we have that link to this fight coming up Saturday that McCarthy will be on the call for. But that was a war back in 2018. On that night, it was McDonald leaving with the welterweight championship, defeating Lima for the title. And since that time, it's been interesting to see the paths that both men have gone on. With Roy McDonald, we saw the majority draw with John Fitch earlier this year. And afterwards, having a very open, honest discussion with John McCarthy inside of the cage and talking about, you know, his conflict and being a Christian and what he does for a living and grappling with that. And obviously, at that time, not appearing to be at a clear answer. And he did bounce back very quickly, came back in the middle of June to defeat Neiman Gracie. And that leads us to this final. Since the loss to McDonald, uh, Lima entered the Grand Prix, wins over Andre Korshkov and Michael Venom Page. And that sets him up for the potential of regaining that welterweight gold on Saturday. It was an unbelievable fight. One that the visual of Roy McDonald's leg will be ingrained in your memory if you watch that fight. And for Roy McDonald, he is someone that I always circle back to. UFC 189, July 11th of 2015. That was a crossroads fight. And interesting as we piece together the the history of Roy McDonald, just going back to that fight and then the speech I just mentioned after the Fitch fight of John McCarthy being front and center and someone that I think has a very unique perspective into Roy McDonald because he has seen Rory at his most vulnerable and in these positions that, you know, it's it's really something when you see a fighter uh, bear such an enormous part of their soul, both physically in the Lawler fight and emotionally after that majority draw with John Fitch. So we have questions about Roy McDonald going into Saturday's fight, what a loss would mean for his future in MMA, what a win does for him conversely. So we got to chat earlier with uh, John McCarthy, somebody that is the really the godfather of MMA regulation, someone that has been uh, has written the book 
on the history of mixed martial arts, an invaluable resource to anybody wanting to learn the roots and where all of this came from, what the makeup is. I mean, he has been front and center at all of this. So anytime I have a chance to catch up with John, it's always great to chat with him. And we covered uh, several topics in this chat. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, we are here with Big John McCarthy getting set for Bellator 231 and 232 this weekend. Are you are you on double duty this weekend? I am on double duty this weekend, so I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> what is a what is a typical day of like for you compared to days as a as a referee and ju- just the actual hours leading up to the broadcast for you? Uh, you know, it's a lot of the same hours, but to- spent totally different. I was uh, spending most of my time traveling as a referee, and you know, I would get to an event. Sometimes day before, sometimes day of, and uh, just do my job as the referee. And so I didn't have to worry. I, you know, I, I always watched film on guys if I knew that I was going to be around guys that I hadn't seen. But it's pretty easy now. My days are spent. I watch film on everybody, everybody that's fighting. I watch as many fights of theirs as I can, anything that I can find, and then I'm writing my ideas of where they're strong, where they're weak. Um, what you know, what their opponent needs to do, what they need to do against their opponent. It's all written down in a bio that I put together. That's just there. So as the fight, you know, is walking out, I can look at it. I have my notes stuff. I know exactly, you know, fights that these guys have done. You know, it gets kind of planted in my head. And so it's a lot more detail work now than it was in the past. But it's all good. If you were to go back January of 2018 and watch one of your first broadcasts, what do you what do you feel are, are some of the biggest strides you've made now doing this consistently? Oh man, I go back. I first off, I had no idea when to shut up. I had no idea when to start. <laughs> you know, I didn't know a lot. You know, obviously, I had an idea of what to say during the fight and things to pick out. But you know, I was so green in uh, the broadcast realm of just how to present things. So I've gotten a lot better. I still got a ways to go is the way I look at it. You you always need to be trying to improve. If you're not improving, then you're falling back. But uh, it's a world of difference comparatively now to just a couple years ago. When you are uh, kind of now watching, sitting down, and just watching a broadcast yourself, I'm sure for years you're kind of watching it from a very unique perspective of someone that has been a referee. Are you watching broadcasts any differently now that you're listening to the commentators and kind of zeroing in on that aspect now a bit more than before? Yeah, now I'm now I'm, I'm, I'm just ripping apart all parts of the broadcast. The refereeing, the judging, the broadcast. Yeah, no, you do. You start to say, oh, that was really good. Or, what the hell did he just say? No, that's so wrong. You know, that's okay. We're all going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. Other guys are going to say things. You go, oh, no, that's not right. But it's part of just you got a very short window to get that information out. Sometimes your brain's rolling and it goes, and sometimes there's a big old block wall that gets in the middle of what you're trying to say and bringing it out the right way. Uh, it's an enormous fight on Saturday, obviously, with Roy McDonald and Douglas Lima. As you're preparing for this broadcast and you're assessing Roy McDonald, I'm kind of curious some of the questions you have and how many of those go back to UFC 189 and that fight with Robbie Lawler. Is that like a constant that you look back on with Roy, like a crossroads fight for him in terms of a, a night that really defined his career and, and since then? You know, you're right. I always look at fighters and, and it's like a Ferrari. You know, I, I, I make fighters are like cars and some guys are F-250 trucks. And some guys are, you know, Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And Rory was that. He's a Ferrari. 
he's that guy that was just good everywhere, and, and he had that that wow factor when he fought and what he could do. But you're always looking to see how much damage has that car taken. And that, that fight at 189, Rory took a lot of damage. And I wasn't sure in the end how that damage was going to affect him. And then he came out, and he had a fight against Stephen Thompson after that. And it was, he didn't perform badly. He didn't perform great. Stephen didn't perform great. It was, you know, it was a style matter. He didn't take, you know, a lot for damage in the fight. But as he progressed with Bellator, you know, I thought when he, when he fought the, the, uh, Paul Daly fight. I thought he looked fantastic. Going against a guy that is a heavy hitter, didn't accept any damage at all, just put on a beautiful performance. And looking at that, I went, Rory's back. And I think Rory is in this position of he's evolving. And when I say evolving, he's evolving not only as a fighter, he's evolving as a human being. He's evolving as a, as a father now, as a husband. And I think for moments, he had that question, you know, that doubt about what am I doing? You know, is this really what I want to be? Because we all have doubts, you know, somewhere along the way in, in our in our path to what it, what is going to be who we are. We all have doubts. Is this really what I want? I could be doing other things. And if, if you're not 100% in on fighting, you should leave. And he had that doubt, and I got it in the interview, and I said, you know, he goes, I don't know if I have this anymore. I don't know if I can hurt people. This is one of the most more honest assessments you're ever going to get from somebody. And it was one of the one of the most, as you say, open and honest things that someone says, because no one wants to say that. And he just put it out there, and you look and you go, it's okay. If you can say that in front of all these people, you're on the right path. You just need to find your answer. It's either yes or no. And that's okay, because at least you can confront it and say, this is a problem for me, and I'm having this problem in questioning. And I think now Rory's answered that question for himself. He knows that he can be a good father. He knows he can be a good husband. He can be a good Christian, and he can fight and represent his family, pay for you know his child's future education and everything by being a fighter. And yes... At times, he has to hurt people, but he's not trying to hurt them permanently. He's trying to win a competition, and I think at this point, Rory's got it back, and going against the guy he is uh, facing in Douglas Lima, he's got to have it back, or it's not going to be a fight. Uh, you've been very outspoken about the, the effects of weight cutting as a large problem in the sport. California is introducing something very important right now with the fighters unable to add more than 15% of their weight from their weigh-in uh, number. How important is it for a change like this for other commissions to show that uniformity? Is that what it's ultimately going to take? Because California is an outlier, and I, I give them a lot of credit for taking that step when they don't have to. You, you said exactly it. It's a matter of who the hell is going to – you got the commission that stepped up first. So who's going to follow? And you've got to have people getting in line and saying, all right, we're going to do this too. Because when you are that outlier, it doesn't mean anything. You know, it's, it's nice that California took that first step, said, hey, we'll, we'll take the heavy brunt of this and put it into effect. But other commissions have got to start following it because if they don't, then it means nothing. Because then people will just say, well, I'm just not going to fight in California because, you know, I don't want to fight it. And, and you look at the restriction, 15%, that's reasonable. You know, you're looking at a guy that fights at 155. He's got to be somewhere around 171, 172. That's reasonable. That's up into the next weight class. You know, so 
it's it's a good thing with what California is trying to do in trying to create a atmosphere of health and safety for the fighters. Let's just see which commissions step up to match it. If if it deters any fights or fighters from wanting to go there, big names, a UFC fighter, do you feel that it's incumbent that the promotion stands by this? Because that's ultimately, I mean, that's a big statement. If UFC says, hey, fighter X, we're not going to have them fight in California because they disagree with this, it's really going against, to me, like the whole spirit of what this rule is, which is a safety precaution. Absolutely it is. Yeah, it's a matter of... Promotions are going to do. Promotions are there to make money. I understand that, and they don't want to. No promotion wants to have the chance of losing their main event fight or their co-main event fight in a 24-hour window when their fighters made weight. So it's a you know what California is doing. It's a tough situation for everyone, not only the fighters, that promotion because the promotion can lose big time based upon. All of a sudden, the fighter comes in and weighs in, and now, oh, second time, you can't, you know, you can't fight because of your weight. The other aspect is, does a fighter try to ma- maintenance that weight between that actual weigh-in, and now they're going to maintenance that level to the 15% weigh-in, and then try to hydrate more? There's a lot of questions with it. There's no perfect in, in any of this. And then, what you're trying to do is get people that will come together and try to work out the best method to take care of a problem that we all know is going to cause someone's death. We know it's going to happen. It's going to happen in the big shows. So why, since we know it's going to happen, why are we not doing something before it happens proactively to make sure that that is something that doesn't happen? Final two things here. Uh, Recently, Bellator had the, the Featherweight Grand Prix selection show which I thought was fantastic. Uh, was Is it accurate that you were responsible for the champion's choice for Patricio Pitbull, which was a fun little curveball at the end? And how did you think the uh, experiment went? We've seen this in K1, but I just thought it was a, a tremendous, uh, tremendous aspect to kick off this Grand Prix. Um, yeah, I had, I had called uh, Scott Coker and talked to him and said, you know, hey, you've got the thing. Just talking to someone, and I got this kind of crazy idea. Maybe, you know... And I told him, he goes, I love it. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, I, you know, I, yeah, in talking with one of my producers, that, that was something that came up. And, you know, I just thought it was another just added little thing on top of it. It's fun. Well, fine. yeah, and I love the concept that a promoter will take all of that control of being able to match these guys the way you want and letting it go and putting it in the fighter's hands. Because you really are doing something that promoters don't want to do. They don't want to lose that control. And Bellator allows these guys in this show to say, all right, you know, if you're if you're number one, like A.J. McKee was, all right, I want to fight right away. I'm in that first slot. At least he's being able to say, I know when my next fight is. And then the other guys getting to pick who they fought against. I, I thought it all worked out. And then in the end, I thought what Patricio Pitbull did, I thought it was smart. You know, I'm, you look at everything that he's, he looked at that entire thing and he said, okay, and he, and he didn't know about that until that, the day, the night before, because, you know, I'd kind of asked him a question in the fighter interviews and I said, if you were given the opportunity just to fight anybody anywhere, you know, you know, if you could move your spot, would you do that? And he goes, no, I don't want to show weakness. I'll take who they give me. You know, and I was like, hmm, I think he's going to stick with what he's going to do. 
And then when it was explained to him, he, his, he had the greatest comment of anything when he finally got it. They're explaining, no, you get to, he says, so you're saying at this moment, with this board, I'm God. Right? And they go, yes, you're God. He goes, I like that. And I thought, you know, he picked a guy in Carvalho who's a good fighter. But experience-wise, he's one of the you know less experienced of the fighters up there. He put A.J. McKee and Adam Borch on one side of that bracket. So I don't have to face either one of those guys. You know, they're going to kick one of them, along with the other guys, they're you know, going to get canceled down to possibly just one, or if Caldwell wins or if Campos wins. So I don't have to deal with them. And I have two guys in my bracket that I fought both of them. I know what they bring. I know who they are. So I've got one guy that's got least experience. If I get past him, I go against guys that I've already fought before, and then I'll take on the other bracket. I don't have to worry about it. I thought it was a brilliant choice by what he did. I love the strategy, and it gave little stories for each opening round fight. It was a lot of fun. Fans all the time are always talking about, oh, you should do this for the fighter. They just gave the fighters control. you got to love that. Final thing here, a um, couple years back, about two years ago, you had a pretty serious uh, neck, neck surgery. I saw you lift up a guy today and nearly give him a pile driver for a demonstration. Uh, how are you doing these days? Are, are you rolling on a regular basis? And, and how is the neck uh, several years later? Uh, my neck is a mess. You know, and you didn't see me allow him to grab my neck because uh, you know, I'll, I'll never be the same guy that I was. I don't have the same strength or anything like that. Boss Rutten and I have a, it's almost the same problems. You know, we have the nerve, and it's, hey, I wouldn't change any of it. You know, I don't sit here and complain about it. That's that's the stupidest thing ever. Okay, I had a problem. I've gotten rid of the pain part of it, and now I have, you know, other things that happen with it that I, okay, I'll deal with those things. But I'm doing good. I don't get to roll like I used to. And that's something I miss. I'm just afraid of, I don't want to go back to where I was because being paralyzed is not something I was I thought was fun. So I'm, I've kind of stopped with the rolling. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll spar a little bit, hit mitts and stuff, but I, I don't do near what I was doing in the past. Well, thank you so much for the time, John. I thank really you. appreciate the summit today as well. Appreciate it, and John McCarthy will be on the call Friday and Saturday night for Bellator 231 and 232. We shift on over to Robin Black, somebody, a man that is wearing many, many hats in the world of mixed martial arts, from analyst to Somebody that has mastered the marriage of fighting and Instagram and somebody that is also uh, doing work with DAZN. Uh, prior to this interview, um, this was at uh, Montrat Muay Thai in downtown Toronto. We got a, a mini seminar from John McCarthy on the history of MMA, rules, regulations, and then a Q&A. And following that, Robin did this extensive analysis of the first fight between Roy McDonald and Douglas Lima, and it Really incredible to watch Robin in action during these. He has obviously the knowledge set, but also the ability to distribute and present that information in a very entertaining and easily digestible way that you come away with it, not much more intrigued by the fight that he has just set up. And seeing him in real time, how he would prepare for these years ago, where he would sit down and just meticulously go over a fight over and over and over again and come away with observations that to the naked eye can be missed. So he did just a tremendous breakdown of the first fight between McDonald and Lima. And I believe that's going to be running on 
DAZN later this week. At least a we got to see a version of it, and the I guess professional version will be seen on DAZN's platforms. But Robin Black is someone that I've known for years, uh, one of my good friends, and here he is chatting about what he's been up to and Bellator's cards coming up this weekend in Uncasville, Connecticut. Joining us here, post wrestling, good friend of the show, Robin Black is with Ooh. us, Ooh. a man of a just. Uh, a million different functions out there but uh today we got to see a very cool seminar from you just looking at the first fight between rory mcdonald and douglas lima uh, we're just a couple days out from the rematch on saturday night friday and saturday uh with Be- big bellator cards but um tell us for a bit when you sit down and you dissect rory mcdonald and douglas lima what are those overarching thoughts that you start with and then start to zero in on yeah the the process is a really it's a really wild one and, you know, now I'm doing this sometimes over and over again. And partly because, like, you know, what's one of your favorite songs? Like, what are, or name a song that you love that you've heard a thousand times. Cartoon Heroes by Aqua. The Cartoon Heroes by Aqua. You don't hear that song the same now as you heard it before. It's an entirely different song. It goes way deeper than its surface value. <laughs> exactly. You have some connection to it. You have some memories attached to it. It has meaning. But when you listen to music or you drink a wine or you, do, you look at a piece of art, there's the obvious things. That painting is blue. It's got red stripes on it. You know, there's, it's got a couple of splashes of yellow on it. But as you look at the painting for a long time, it's what were the brush strokes like? You can ask how did that technique uh, develop? What's the history of that? What kind of paint is being used? I mean, this is, and with wine, you can at one time someone's like, you want red or white? And then they start saying, well, do you want a Cabernet or do you want a something else? And then they say, would you like it from this region? What are the notes? What are the flavors? Fighting's the same. It's exactly the same. You know, at first, there is the narrative that you feel when you are experienced watching fighting. Now, uh, Big John is a great uh, commentator. Joe Rogan is a great commentator. These are my friends. Michael Bisping. These guys are awesome. I love their perspective. But almost always now, I will turn it off. Not because I don't love it, but because narratives that you hear start to narrow down what you see. And we all know this. It's, it's the election day in Canada today. And if you go... You know, and you ask somebody about Justin Trudeau, they will say one of two things that they've heard on the news, on the channels that they've heard. This guy, it's too soon. He did whatever narrative they've heard on television. Fighting is the same thing, whether it's Joe's narrative or Daniel Cormier's narrative or my own narrative. A narrative forms what you think happened and it starts to dominate your thinking. So I don't listen to any other things anymore, and I try to do. And, it, and I know I'm taking forever to answer your question, but that's the nature of, of of dimensional thinking, right? Is you try for as long as humanly possible not to draw, jump to conclusions. The longer you can stay in a state of uncertainty about what's happening, the more dimensionally you can think. So the long and the short of it is, you start with yes. Doug kicks legs really well. If you kick somebody's leg a lot, they can't stand up. If they can't stand up, you can beat them up. And that's what happened in the first fight. He kicked Roy's legs a whole bunch until Roy couldn't stand up. Despite that, despite the injury, something in sort of the, the psychological and physical makeup of Roy McDonald allowed him to get back up, allowed him to get on top and finish the fight on top and win. That's all true. But it's where you start to peel deeper layers. How did Doug become so good at this? What does it actually mean to be that good at it? And you go into the gym and you train with a, with a trainer. What Doug does is he's able to kick you when you move and catch you during moving. 
And if you stand still, he's able to kick you. What, and you're only doing one of those two things at all times. You're either standing still or you're moving. And if Doug can kick you in either of those moments, you're in a lot of trouble. And so you start to, over time, you start to look at what's the true skill that's happening here? How did they develop it? What did we think was the maximum level that skill could be? And how are they beyond it? How can you kick Rory, although he spent a lifetime trying not to be kicked or to catch your kicks, and Rory's extraordinarily good at catching kicks, but somehow he still can't catch Doug's. What does that mean? How did that develop? You just start digging. What does it mean to really go in? And how emotionally challenging is it to overcome the pain of that leg? Well, it's hard to answer that. I I can tell you that yesterday I did a story for Vice where I had to try to eat 50 chicken McNuggets. I prepared to eat these 50 chicken McNuggets, and at about 30, I was unprepared for the psychological and emotional challenge of trying to eat 50 chicken McNuggets because I'd never experienced it. I thought I would feel full. I thought it would be difficult to eat them. What I didn't realize is that I would start to feel sad as I was eating them. And that's what happened. So you can't prepare for these things. But as you think about it, you're, you can ask yourself, why is it that most human beings cannot stand up when they have only one leg and still come back and win a fight and Rory could? And that question is in and of itself something you can spend years trying to answer. Uh, but this is the game. This is the game of analyzing anything, is obsessing with it long enough to keep asking questions over and over and again and delay the desire to jump to conclusions long enough to keep asking questions. How has that affected when you're doing commentary, whether it be TKO or any other promotions? Do you try and apply these principles to commentary, or do you see that the demands of this particular job on this night, I, I do have to... I do have to put it into more bite-sized thoughts. How does it, has it affected your commentary at all? It, it definitely has. It definitely has. Because, you know, when you sit down, let's say, you, you know, you're on a podcast. Let's say I'm on Joe Rogan's podcast. In three hours, we could talk about one thing for as long as we want. And some people might find that really interesting. Some people would just think we're crazy. But some people would find that interesting. But in the context of a fight, in that moment, uh, Douglas Lima kicked Rory in the leg and Rory fell down. There's not a lot of time to explain a lot more. But what I have found over time is by removing the obvious narrative. So to me, you start to hack commentary itself. Once upon a time, commentary was done on the radio for baseball. People couldn't see the baseball game, but they wanted to hear what was happening. So the commentator would say, uh, oh, there's a hit. He's running to, to the first base. There's a pitch. Oh, or there, he's trying to throw. He doesn't get him out. He rounds first base and he gets to second. So you're describing what you see because people can't see it. Then later, they put baseball on TV, and they didn't have a commentator. And people were like, I kind of miss that commentator. That, the way, hearing that guy talk really was, was comforting. So you, you, he comes back on TV, and although we can see very clearly the ball was hit and the guy is running to first base, we still do it as if you can't. That's an irrelevant point. There's, oh, my God, he landed a big right hand. He fell down. Now he's punching him. I can fucking see all of that. Right. So uh, over time, I've started to not describe the obvious. I've tried to stay away from that. I never say, you know, and and a lot of it, we all imitate Joe Rogan to a certain degree because Joe was the innovator. What people loved about Joe was he was innovative. He did it different. Somehow the reaction to saying that guy's different. I love him is let's try to do it exactly the same as him. That doesn't make any sense. The reason he's brilliant is because he's unique. Right. So what you could take from that is. I should try to be able to be an individual and do it my own way. Uh, but what most people do is, holy shit, Joe Rogan's really good. I'm going to try to be like that. But if you turn it off for long enough, you realize Joe was teaching people what something was. So Joe would say, 
oh, oh my God, look at that. It's a beautiful low kick. He's complimenting a simple thing that he's observing so that over time people would understand. Oh, look at this. He's landing huge elbows. Now, understanding how and why he's throwing elbows, giving it a compliment, you get to hear Joe's passion in it, you get to hear his enthusiasm, you get to hear his appreciation from it. But over time, we don't need to do that anymore. If you turn on a hundred fights where a guy gets punched and falls down, 92 of them will say, oh my God, it's a big right hand, he fell down. Oh my God, it's a big right hand, he's knocked down. Whatever. Unnecessary. That doesn't have to be said at all. There's absolutely no value to that whatsoever. It's done out of habit, it's done out of ritual, it's done out of formula. So I don't say, I try as best I can to not say that. It's actually very difficult because we've been trained to parrot what we see. You know, once upon a time, we would watch our primate... um, um, families and, and part of our tribe stick a stick down an anthill, they'd get ants and they'd eat it. We'd all imitate it. Hey, look, this is how we eat ants. And eventually we, it, it was rewarding to imitate, you know, use our motor neurons to imitate others in the tribe. And so that's what humans do. But there's no value to imitating everyone who's commentated football exactly the same way for 35 years. No value in that. So I try not to say the obvious. And over time, first thing that happens is you're like, well, then what should I say? Okay, if I'm not going to say he hit him with a huge right hand and knocked him down, what should I say? And after you sit with that discomfort for a long time, eventually the answer you come to is, oh, my God, anything else. I could talk about the, you know, the pain. I can talk about the experience. I can talk about their brains. I can talk about the physiology. I can talk about the emotion. I can talk about the suddenness. I can talk about time and space. I can talk about fucking anything. And, and so over time, it has shaped that. It's still tricky because in the end, there still has to be some structure. Who are these two guys? Why are they fighting? Where are they fighting? What does it mean? What's happening? That still has to be in there. But I've gotten away over time. There's no point in saying, big right hand lands. Oh, he's down. He's dishing out some ground and pound. It's all over. Wow. There's no value in any of that. So over time, I've just started to not say it, which opens up, again, that question in your brain, what should I say? And then you start trying other things. And when you don't have all the answers, and you never will, is you start looking at layers. Okay, fights, fights have a texture. Okay, well, what's the texture of this fight? What does that actually mean? Fights have a, a pace and a speed and there's a flow and some are jagged and some are sudden, some are scary, some are intense, some are relaxed. All of these things are happening. Over time, you just have to learn them and learn the verbiage. And I do love doing commentary. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, but it, yes, it is definitely informed by the obsessive peeling of layers to study things to be able to analyze it and do the breakdowns I do. How has the, the work increased with the zone, and what are you going to be doing this week when you're down in Uncas Hill in, in the lead-up to both cards? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite – I'm very happy right now because, like, I'm a, sort of a true freelancer. I'll go to TSN a couple of times a month and get to analyze and comment, uh, analyze and do breakdowns and storytell and do interviews and stuff about, about the UFC, some of the biggest fights in the world. So I'll go there and I'll do some stuff on Jorge versus Nate Diaz. Next week. This week, I'll work for DAZN, and I'll go down to Connecticut, and I'll do, I'll do some interviews. i got to chat with Jake Hager about you know, his experience, and, and I'll do some one-on-one interviews. I'll do some physical breakdowns where I'll walk around with some of the fighters, and they'll show me their favorite move. And then I'll do my normal kind of breakdowns where I analyze the pieces. And all I have to do is follow my curiosity and do it my way and put it on the Internet and tag them and, and share it with their platforms. And that's my job now, which is really crazy. And, it, and you make it sound simple, but you have like you have figured out like the proper use of like so many of these different channels that 
many struggle with. Like, how do I find an audience? Like, you have you have narrowed in and, and found that. Yeah, that that's been tricky. I literally looked at at Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn and stuff as a martial art. Like, how do I get what 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 would a blue belt in in Instagram look like? How do I get one? Like, what do I have to do? What skills do I have to learn? It was really the same kind of thing. But yeah, now there's an audience that likes my stuff. Like my breakdowns are well over half a billion views now. Five hundred million views they've they've been watch, which boggles my mind. So now when I make them, DAZN or Bellator is like, cool, yeah, here, you know, do you, what do you need? You need money? You need footage? Just go do your stuff. You need to fly to the, to the event? Let's just empower you to do your thing, which I would have never dreamed was actually a job years ago, but it's amazing. And then I've, I've got some commentary work with TKO in Canada and uh, Letway, the World Letway Championships in like in Southeast Asia, and I'm doing stuff with RT, talking about UFC again with RT over in Russia. I got some friends over there that I like talking fights with. And uh, yeah, there's probably other stuff I'm forgetting about it, but I literally just analyze and, and talk about fighting and dig into it and, and follow my curiosity all the time. And now I make a super good living doing that for a whole bunch of people that seem to like it. It's almost like you figured out that I will, I will prepare work for my audience, take that audience with me. And that's kind of your currency that, Hey, I, these people will follow me to these different places. And there's that value that, you know, you have numbers attached to you. And I think that's very appealing to companies that want to reach people that you're going directly to the fight consumer. Yeah. Those are real human beings who say, you know, uh, some people will be like, that guy is weird. That guy commentates or analyzes fighting in a strange way. Or that guy does it. You know, where I don't like what he does. Then other people, millions of them will say, we really like it the way he does it. And we want him to be the guy that tells us about fighting. That explains what's happening. Tells us what it means. Takes us behind the scenes. Show, uh, chats with people from his perspective. There's like literally millions of people that seem to want that. And um, because I've just done it authentically my way it was really hard for a while because you're doing it a weird way your way if your way is different it's a weird way like art is inherently a a game of you know breaking rules to really make art so to break a bunch of rules is difficult people won't always like it but eventually you do it and you stay with it long enough and you find your your actual voice and perspective and also skill development is just work i've done 15 or 1600 of these. Like, I have to get better. Like, you just have to. If you do something that much, you will learn about things differently. You'll study them different. You'll learn different things about them. Start studying the brain and the nervous system and the body and history and all of these things. And you fold all these different paradigms in and then you have a different perspective. And if you really deeply give a fuck, eventually some other people will too. My final question. It is October the 21st, 2019. Do you know where you were? Six years ago, right now. I have no I Russia? You were in Russia with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Six years ago. That was six years ago. So we did, we did 18 different, we did uh, 16 different martial arts over 18 days. And I did double, double duty. I would do some with you and some with Pollock and, or some with Ramdeen and, and some with Corey. And, but I think of things like that as those deep training grounds where by doing hundreds of hours. We called hundreds of fights. I went back to Russia to commentate the World Wushu Championships and then to China to do the World Kung Fu Championships. And I did, I did a number of these ones where you're going to literally commentate like 30, 40 fights a day, sometimes two, two um, uh, sessions. You know, and you start doing 50 and 60 fights a day when you're putting those two sessions together for 10, 15, 20 days. These are just intensive periods where you must get better. I'm talking about I'm in conversation to commentate 
uh, karate and taekwondo and maybe more at the Olympics next year. Um, if I do that, and I think there's a pretty likely chance that I, that I'll get to do that. If I do, it'll go back to all of those things we did in Russia and I've commented the Pan Ams and things like that where you do dozens and dozens and sometimes, you know, 40 and 50 and 60 fights a day. And that's what gets you ready to do this. And that's how skills are developed. You're, you, you either get better or you don't. And I try to get better. Robin, always great to catch up with you. You can follow him at Robin Black MMA. And where can they see some of your work this week? Zone will have the uh, your analysis and videos this week. Yeah, I, I put out everything out, almost everything on my platforms too. It's it's at Robin Black Martial Arts on Instagram because my at Robin Black MMA. Oh, I right. You had the 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 rebranding. Yes. Uh, I, um, and then on Twitter, it's at Robin Black MMA. And then all the, all the DAZN platforms and all the Bellator platforms. Bella, I've been doing a bunch of stuff direct for Bellator too, which has been really fun. They're young and cool and smart and they'll take risks. And so it's a very different, I really, it's like being in a punk rock band working for Bellator. It's really quite cool. So I'm trying to do more stuff for them too. And so Bellator platforms, DAZN platforms, and then all mine too. All the best. Thank Thanks, you so much, man. Robin. Always a pleasure. And that's going to wrap things up. Thank you to John McCarthy and Robin Black for stopping by, chatting with us here at Post Wrestling. Bellator 231, Friday night. It's going down with Frank Mir and Roy Nelson in the main event. And it's a must-win scenario for both heavyweights at this stage of their career. Mir has lost his last four fights. Nelson, his last three. They are headlining this card because of their names, because of their resumes, and not so much because of what they have done in their Bellator tenures. So a win is... Of great importance, I would go a step further and say that, you know, with Bellator's deal with DAZN, I think as much as it's been uh, financially viable for them, it has limited Bellator's visibility. So Friday is a card where they are going to be simulcast on DAZN and the Paramount Network. I would say if you did an above average number on Paramount, that's as much a feather in the cap for Mir and Nelson as a win goes, that these guys are still commodities to the MMA public in 2019. That card on Friday is also going to feature uh, Phil Davis taking on Carl Albertson, Ed Ruth, their rising welterweight star, taking on Jason Jackson, uh, Beck Rawlings making her Bellator debut at 125 pounds. Kevin Ferguson Jr., the son of the late Kimbo Slice, he returns, and we're also going to see Jake Hager in action. So it's in the case of the Friday card, it really is a, a showcase for a number of their, you know, stars on the rise in the likes of your Ed Ruth, uh, a Kevin Ferguson Jr. that I think the jury is still out on of where he is going to mature into as a fighter, and then you have Jake Hager in the opener on the main card taking on Anthony Garrett. He's a four and two fighter. And we're just seeing incremental gains of experience and skill set for Hager's opponents. We can see what the game plan is. They're not throwing him to the wolves. He was not going to be thrust into a position where he would be overwhelmed and it falls like a, a house of cards. They're taking a, a steady approach with Jake Hager, who is trying to do the balance of professional wrestling and mixed martial arts. And that's proven to be difficult for some in the past. And we're going to see how Hager is able to balance the two. Granted, with All Elite Wrestling, it's a much more limited schedule. This guy isn't on the road every week, not even necessarily going to be doing a match every week. So um, he is, you know, a 2-0 and heavyweight, and we're going to see where he can progress to 
especially in 2020. So that's Friday's offering. Saturday has the big fight with Roy McDonald and Douglas Lima headlining uh, the show that is a DAZN exclusive show that's also going to feature Paul Daly against a late replacement opponent in Syed Awad who replaces Saba Homasi who had to pull out earlier this week due to injury. And because of that, it will be a 175-pound catchweight fight. Nick Newell also fighting on that show on Saturday. So some big fights coming from Bellator. None bigger than Roy McDonald and Douglas Lima on Saturday night, though. Plus, we've got UFC early Saturday morning from Singapore. Ben Askren is attempting to rebound from that devastating knockout uh, by Jorge Masvidal back in July. He takes on Damian Maya. It's going to be a fascinating fight to see. You look at these fights sometimes and you would just assume the the grappling, the wrestling is going to cancel one another out and they'll just stand. And at a time, that was a style that Damian Maya did flirt with, just standing with guys. Not the case anymore. Go back to that Jake Shields fight. This guy has no reservations about grappling with anybody. And the question, it, it's an, it's a fascinating fight of Askren's wrestling, Damian Maya's jiu-jitsu, and then what other elements of their game end up being difference makers in this fight. It's one I'm intrigued by a lot. It's not a deep card by any stretch on Saturday morning from the UFC, but that main event is quality. So that's what's coming up this weekend in mixed martial arts. Again, I want to thank Big John McCarthy and Robin Black for stopping by. Way and I will be back late Wednesday night with Rewind to Dynamite. We're going to go through all of your theme song submissions as we will crown the winner and your song will be the opening theme every week for Rewind to Dynamite. Plus, we've got Braden and Davey with a free version of Up Next out Wednesday night and then Thursday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern, Cafe Hangout Time. Everyone that is a member of the cafe can tune in live, call in live, and for six bucks a month on the cafe, you get access to all of our bonus shows, minimum two per week, and access to watch the Cafe Hangout live every Thursday. So a lot of great stuff. We've also got a new Rewind Away Up for Cafe members with a review of the June 30th episode of Monday Nitro. Lots of cool stuff to check out. Go on over to postwrestling.com. And that's it. We'll speak with you Wednesday night following Dynamite.